0: Welcome to On The Brink, a fresh lens to take you and your business to new heights. As you know, I'm Andy Simon, your host and your guide. My job is to get you off the brink. I want you to soar. But the only way you can do that is if you can see, feel and think in new ways so that you can change what you've all been doing. The times they are changing and we're futurists and we need to see what's coming and begin to make stories up about them. So that's what Simon Associates does. And that's about all the advertising I'm going to tell you about. Our job is to help you change. And people hate to change. Today, I found a marvelous, marvelous person who came to me through my PR firm of the past, Sarah Wilson. Byron Reese is amazing. Let me tell you about him, and then he'll tell you about himself. And I love his face. (laughs) Byron is an Austin-based entrepreneur with a quarter century of experience building and running technology companies. It's gonna be interesting listening to how he's applied it in his new book today. The new book is called Stories, Dice, and Rocks That Think. And don't kid yourself, we're gonna be talking a lot about how humans learn to see the future and shape it, our conversation for today. He's recognized authority on AI and holds a number of technology patents, He's also a futurist. Now, this podcast has been ranked among the top 20 futurist podcasts. I didn't know I was a futurist, but I like to help you see that future. And if you can't see it, you can't live today. He gives talks around the globe about how technology is changing work, education and culture like everything. And it's fun to think about it. He's an author of four books, but today I think we're gonna talk about this new one because it adds some dimension to all the others that he's put together. Byron, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's so much fun. Share with the listener or the viewer, who is Byron Reese and give us your journey so we can talk about how you got here because everything had a little of the past, a little of the future and a lot of hard work to come. And having written books and writing my next one, what stories Dyson rocks that think, and how did
1: Byron come up with it? Well, um, I've always been in technology because I've always been really interested in it. Not, I'm not a gadget person, but I'm really interested in the idea of technology, and it's this thing we kind of discovered as a species that it allows us to amplify what we're able to do, but without it, we're you know, there was a time, we think, um, we hit a genetic bottleneck a long time ago, and there were just a 1,000 or 2,000 mating pairs of humans left, and nobody would have bet on us then, and here we are, and it's because we learned that trick about technology. And so I've always just been really intrigued by the idea of technology, and so I've did, done that as a business, and then I started writing um Every morning before I got to work, I would just start uh, writing, and those became the books that I wrote. And they're just kind of my own journey of what I think about and I find interesting.
0: Well, you know, you don't sort of just stumble into being an AI or a patent expert in technology. You know, were these important as you were growing up? Did you have particular role models or aha moments or things that just sort of were curious for you?
1: No, I I grew up on a on a farm. Uh, in east texas outside of a town with only 500 people so uh it was not a a, an area steeped in technology but um you know my my father had a had a a corporate job for like 30 something years and his father worked on the railroad and his father operated a ferry and 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 when i looked back it, it always seemed like they kind of did the thing that epitomized their times yes the was the western migration and then the railroad and then the the the, you know just the corporate thing that came up and lifetime employment and all of that And, and and i knew growing up that you could just tell like it was technology and so i went to college and met my uh wife or the woman who would become my wife and we moved to the bay area to just be a part of that energy that was in the 90s and uh we did that for a while and then when we decided to To start a family, we moved back to Texas, to Austin, and we uh, raised and homeschooled four children, and uh, and that's, that's me.
0: Well, you are, and that's a very interesting story, your reflection on how each of your parents, grandparents, and so forth were reflecting the times in which they were living. You, in some ways, are reflecting the times that we're living in now, huh? which I would not have thought about. But as the listener or viewer is listening and watching, think about it. You know, where are you now because of where we are now as a society? This book, though, has a particular purpose, I think. And and I think it would be good to talk about it's not a tech book. It is a history of humankind in a very important way which should give the listener and the viewer some time to think about the times that we are in. Because somehow, 50,000 years ago, or 40,000, we had a quantum leap in our brain. And we aren't just like any other animal. Remember, we are one species. There are 40,000 different ant species. That's how they have mutated and populated the world. We're just one. And we probably can intimate with anyone across the globe, which is sort of an interesting phenomenon. But we also can see the future and anticipate our mortality and look back on the past and worry about our memory. Was it right? Was it wrong? And it's always different than what actually happened. So we are an interesting human. Let's talk. Byron, how did this book begin to develop? And then let's talk about the three phases that so fascinated you there.
1: I got very interested in the question of why, why we're different than animals, because It was here, you know, we're just another animal. But when you look around the world, it doesn't look that way. It it really looks like we're aliens and everything else is kind of native. But we're very different. We're cities and literature and all that. And and we really got curious why that happened. And the short answer is that we believe in two things that don't exist. We believe in the future and the past. And, And animals don't. It's a contentious statement, but I, I try to justify it in the book. Uh, and what we do is is we have what's known as episodic memory, where we remember specific things that happened to us, which animals don't, and things to make predictions into the future, maybe just a minute into the future. Maybe I'm thinking, okay, I want to climb that tree and get an apple. What's the best way to do it? The, the, those sorts of things. And those were, I think, were the first stories we told ourselves. They were they weren't fiction. They were like us. That's how we think. We think that way. We we kind of picture these different things. and It's very different than other creatures. I mean, to send that point home, like the coolest thing I learned writing this book uh, is probably that there was a creature that lived before us called Homo erectus. And erectus lived almost uh, 1.6 million years. 80,000 generations. And erectus only had one tool called an Shulean hand axe. It looks like a uh, Big arrowhead. That's it. And no matter when you find these or on which of three continents you find them, they're all alike. And that's really mysterious because Mm -hmm. they should. You would think if, if in eighty thousand generations everybody was just copying their parents, then eventually they would, they would, you know, like the telephone game. They would just change, and in different regions they would take them, but they didn't. They're all identical. And what does that mean? It means Erectus didn't know they were making those tools. The way a bird doesn't know they're building a nest. Like, they, they do it, but um, it isn't something that they know how to do. They, 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 I mean, like, it's not a cultural object or a technological object. It's a genetic object. You see, a beaver, if you put a recording of music, of uh, running water in the middle of a field and a beaver walks by, the beaver's <laughs> going to build a dam over it. Like, they don't really know what they're doing, but they know how to build that one dam. <laughs> and they know and that water makes them build that dam. Right. And so you think about that 80,000 generations where nothing happened. And then you think about us. We only took three generations to get from Kitty Hawk to the moon. And you realize we are a very different thing. And I I, I kind of think it's this. For millions of years, billions of years, billions of years, the only place we had to write down what we learned was in our DNA. It was it. And uh, it was... It took millions of years to write one new thing. And then one day we got what you talked about, language, 40, 50,000 years ago. And all of a sudden we could think. And that's really the power of language is it organizes your thoughts. It's not mere speculation. There's a wonderful quote in the book from Helen Keller who talked about what her life was like before her teacher came and how she didn't know she was a person. Yes. She didn't even know she was a discrete thing in the universe. So we got language. And, uh. And we were able, you know, to.
0: Hold uh... well, for a second. Because I think that um, for my audience, I knew this is a curious question. We were able to think and not necessarily communicate our thoughts. And I think that when you are uh, walking in the woods and there's nobody to talk to, but you're thinking and you're doing just what our ancestors were doing. Then that question always, and I I was fascinated by your effort to try and explain, how did that happen, where all of a sudden we went from our thoughts to being able to share our thoughts, and how would they know what those words meant? And was there a quantum leap in the DNA of everyone at the time to be able to understand language? We have, you know, different languages, but they're all very similar in structure. Um, Is it part of our... Uh, Acquired DNA. I mean, this is not simple stuff because it's really quite interesting about how did we take the thinking, turn it into a conversation that you and I can understand each other's meaning?
1: Yes, absolutely. And of course, we have to speculate a little. And so, there's uh, four or five different ideas on how that could have happened. I tend to believe that there was a mutation that happened in one person, one time. You know, on some Tuesday morning at 8.30 or something, like it happened. And his or her progeny may have inherited that. And that's the capacity to think in language. You see, we don't really have any organs for language. We have to repurpose organs we use for other stuff to be able to do this. And if, in fact, language did begin in just like one person, in one of these little tri- uh, one of these bands of 100, 150 people, uh, and then, after a few generations, when it had spread among them, they would be superheroes. I mean, they would have superpowers, and they would very quickly uh, displace everything else that didn't have capacity for language. It and and that's why it looks like it appeared everywhere all at once. But I I think that's what must have happened because of yes. human universals. There, there are a couple of hundred of these things that all. Human cultures have. Yes. And, now, uh, the
0: interesting part is, is that I got fascinated by the cave art, that all of a sudden we went from no cave. Africa has practically nothing that looks like the European or the Asian cave art. They came at a period of time, and it's not stick figures. And even in the Americas, there's amazing art that all of a sudden emerged at once and we say, how did that happen? You know, your point is an alien. It's not so crazy. Talk to us about art, about music, about the flute, about things that emerged and seemed to say something about who those people were, who created it, and how they shared something that was difficult to share across continents at that time. Um, and all of a sudden did it all at once, uh, even getting to Australia. I mean, there's something there worth sharing more than just read the book, because I love those stories. That's what makes me go, ah, oh, how that happen? How did it happen? What happened? And
1: how did it happen? You're right. There were no precursors of anything like representative art. And if you look at some of these caves, like the cave at Chauvet, the art is there is beautiful. I mean, it's just beautiful. Like, I would frame that and hang it on my wall. The horses were there or whatever. But the thing to keep in mind is it wasn't just that they could do that beautifully. It was high tech, like literally, because they were using fat to um, make the pigments adhere. They were using talc to extend them. Uh, for black, they could have used charcoal. Like they had charcoal like in the fire 20 feet away, uh, but it wasn't black enough, evidently. And so they they figured out a new way to make black pigment using a, a mineral they had to heat to 1200 degrees. is hard to do. And the closest source of it's 140 miles away. So they had to like be mindful enough to go. They had to build scaffolding to get high right up. Places and all of it. So and then to your point, you know, you dig in those caves and Chauvet is amazing because it's like King Tut's tomb. It was sealed off. And then we found it and, and the footprints yes, of, like a boy and his dog are yes. still sand, like <laughs> in the cave. Um but when you when you excavate uh, those times, you're right, we find musical instruments, the oldest ones we have at the exact same time, and we find the representative art at the exact same time. So whatever gave us language, I think really did a lot more than that. I mean, it made us us. And your 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 remark about aliens, I think might be a reference to something in, in the book, where every time I mentioned this to people, they would always say, I bet it's aliens. Uh, and it isn't that people think it's aliens, but it is so dramatic, it invites something like that. Yep, a quantum
0: leap that, that, right. that makes you ask how, and the problem is we want answers, and the problem is we don't have any. And, and, and then there were the Neanderthals and the Nelevians and, and others who look similar but didn't, didn't survive the same way, still have our DNA. They have their DNA in some of us. And so, you know, they were there, but it's a really interesting set of questions. I could spend all our time on that. I don't want to because something happened. So your point about Homo erectus having a DNA that allowed them to produce the same tool everywhere they were. And then humans began to create variety and tremendous ingenuity across the globe. However, we expanded and then came the... Middle Ages, and something transformative developed, And I think I'd like to move a little bit. I mean, that's a lot of time to go from the starting point to major transformation. But I don't care if it's Michelangelo or anybody else in the 17th, 16th, 17th, 15th, 16th, 17th, something happened that had changed us again. You want to share with us what, what happened? Probability theory, what
1: happened? So what happened is we... Uh, got this capacity for language, which we then used to imagine these stories that were very mundane. They were just moments ahead. And later we started articulating them. But like, once we could imagine the future, uh, we weren't content with that. We're not a particularly contented species. And uh, we weren't content with that, and we didn't want to just be able to picture it. We wanted to know what was going to happen. We wanted to predict it. And um, that seems like a tall order. But uh, that's uh, what happened, and we, in 1654, these uh, two men, Vermont and Pascal, are writing these letters, and they're trying to solve this math problem that is trivially simple. I won't even bore you with it, other than to say a 10-year-old could solve it. And, and this is a math problem the great minds of Europe had worked on for 100 years, and they couldn't solve it. And they needed a new way to think about the future, and that's uh, what they did, and they invented probability theory. And then, man, it just all happened. You had the first probability textbook within eight years, and the whole modern world. Uh, artificial intelligence is just probability theory at high speed. <laughs> like, that's all, that's what it is. Like, we invented that. And the reason it took so long is because we had to figure out why the future happened the way it did. I mean, that's really what a futurist is that the people who try to understand why. The future unfolded this way and not that way. If I may have a visual aid, um, there were all different theories on how, why things happened the way they did. They were destined to happen, or they were fated to happen, or they could only happen that way, or... We don't have a clue. But but, what they never guessed was this. So this is probably something you may have seen at a science museum before. Uh, This is a chamber full of, like, BDs. I'm about to flip it. And when I do that, those BBs are going to fall down and they're going to hit these things and they can bounce to the left or the right. And then they'll hit another one. They can bounce to the left or the right, the left or the right. And what happens is every time you do it, you get a normal curve. Look like at that? And you can do this all day long. And this is the <laughs> thing nobody ever imagined was that in randomness, you yeah. have a hiding. Yes, pattern. Yes. Even to this day, if you were to ask me, like, if you if you flipped a coin a 1,000 times, how many times will heads come up? I know to answer that 500, but I mean, I've never done it. And if I didn't know to answer it 500, I would have said, who knows? Maybe 100, and then the next time, 900, and then 800, then 500, then 200. But the chances that it's ever under 400 or more than 600 are one in many billions. It's never happened. It never will happen. And and so you think about the most random thing you can imagine a to coin toss that you can say something that confident about it. And that's the basis of probability theory is uh, you can assign probabilities to things in the future. And and it's based on that shape, like the fact that you can uh, do it. And now a word from our sponsors,
0: Simon Associates Management Consultants. That's us. And we're here to help you see, feel, and think in new ways. Whether you are an organization that's stuck or stalled, or an individual in that organization who's looking to rethink their own life's journey, Simon Associates has designed programs and processes to help you do just that. Our first book, On the Brink, A Fresh Lens to Take Your Business to New Heights, told the stories of seven clients who were stuck or stalled, and a little anthropology helped them see things through a fresh lens, reignite their growth, and soar again. My new book that came out in January 2021 is called Rethink, Smashing the Myths of Women in Business. It's all about how 11 women, including myself, were able to see past the hurdles, the glass ceilings and the brick walls and become the best that they could be. They heard things like women aren't lawyers and women can't lead and women aren't in geosciences. And they said, of course we are. And they really pushed through and did it with such ease that they want other women to see what's possible. At the end of the book, I provide a bit of a how-to process for you. If you're on the brink of rethinking your own life's journey, it's time to pause, step back, and ask yourself, where am I going? What's my passion and my purpose? And am I there or can I get there? Send us your emails to info at and we'll get right back to you to see how we can help. On andysimon.com are some free chapters for both books, and you can also join our newsletter and our Facebook group, Rethink with Andy Simon. We are bringing together women to help other women do what they can't do by themselves very often to see what's possible and become the best that they can be. Come join us. And now back to our podcast. I love reading Martin Seligman's work on Homo Prospectus. And as I often work with my clients, I tell them that if you want to live today, you have to have some visualization of what tomorrow is going to bring. Because if not, we have a very difficult time. You can do the habits of yesterday. We're very habit-driven and comfortable with our habits. But tomorrow isn't going to be like yesterday. It may move slowly or quickly. I mean, the pandemic was so catalytic because it showed everybody how in a moment everything can change. And without any control or decision-making or probability, like, although I suspect some people had a probability theory that that was going to happen, but, but it, is, it is an interesting phenomenon about humans because we need to know what's coming in order for us to prepare for it by living now. Um, the past has given us experiential, but we only remember parts of that. You know, every memory, if you talk to people about what happened on X day when we were all together, they each have a different story. Mm-hmm. And the creativity is that they fit the story into their own stories And so the story reflects them. They're all the heroes in it, but not really necessarily what the truth is. My favorite quote is, the only truth is there's no truth. And so then we get to begin to think about what came out of the great creativity there. And then came along your computers and the modern age, more or less, whatever is going on now and what's coming into the future. Mr. Futurist, tell me, what do you see coming? And how are you getting folks to prepare for the uncertainties that are coming next? What do you see happening?
1: So when we got our uh, cognitive, you know, eye opening, remember earlier, I had talked about the only place we had to write things was in our DNA. Well, suddenly we had a new place. We could write stuff. We could write it in our DNA, but we could also write it just in our head. And that became our DNA. Uh, Instead of, Taking a hundred thousand years to learn not to eat the purple berries. I could just say, hey man, don't eat those purple berries. They'll make you sick. Sick. And that's it. that's it. That was that's a mutation. And it's about to spread. Everybody's gonna say those purple berries are bad. Well, there's an old essay called I Pencil that was written 70 years ago, where a guy points out nobody knows how to make a pencil. There's not a person alive who knows every step of making every part of a pencil. And yet pencils get made. And uh and it is, even though nobody knows how to make it. So, what has happened in the computer age is we now, now with writing and uh, computers, kind of the story of the human story is that people will learn stuff and then they die and then it's forgotten. Then somebody else comes along, learns something and then they die and it's forgotten. Or maybe they taught, told somebody, but then they messed it up. And, and our whole species just, kind of resets every generation yes, uh, do, yes we, we a few things Python filters down through but most things are forgotten and i think that's what's really going to change is that you know i'm going to have a toothbrush that will tell me if i've got flu virus in my mouth and i mean i want that toothbrush and it will collect data and i will have a spoon that will uh tell me the nutrition of every bite i have and It's collecting data right yes. and uh so it can tell me, oh, you're not getting enough whatever, and one after the other. And I think that's kind of what we're building. When we just had probability theory, we basically had paper and pencils and slide rules. And that was it. And so between 1654, when that, when we invented probability, to 1954, the world we built, we built with paper. I mean, we built. Yes. Um, and now we said, oh, you no, know, we want to do this like it massive scale even beyond our own ability and so i think that's what we do we're collecting ever more data and it's and we're going to use that data to to record the life experiences of everybody and use those to make everybody else's life better so that in the future everyone will be wiser than anyone who's ever lived because everyone will have at least access to this this knowledge base. Yeah. I, in the book, I go through all these examples of things that we could have seen in right. the day, like um, they put iodine in salt because uh, so people wouldn't get goiter. What they didn't know is that this whole country had an iodine deficiency. And when when they put iodine in it, the average IQ went up four points, and in some parts of the country, it went up 15 points from that one thing. In the South, which had a corn-based diet, there was niacin deficiency, and they started fortifying cornmeal with niacin. And then, boom, that went away. And, uh, and then we used to put stuff in things like lead, you know, lead paint and lead gasoline. And, and we didn't know. Like, there just wasn't any data. about. There was, there was no such thing as data before 1654. It didn't exist. Why would it? What would you have ever done with data before 1654? It did not exist. And now, you know, if we had had all the data, you would have been able to see all that stuff in that data. And that isn't speculation. I mean, um, there's an antidepressant called Webutrin that after some number of years of being used, some people said, you know, my cravings for cigarettes went down. And they studied it and they found out, wow, that's a smoking cessation drug. There you go. And they repackaged it, and and so forth. So it's like there's everything in the data. But we don't yet have the tool. We have the compute to do it now. Like we have processor power, but we don't really have the tools to cope with the kind of data sets that are being automatically built to try to build this knowledge base.
0: Yeah. um, For a number of years, I taught a course for the Society for Healthcare Strategy and Market Development, and it was called Your Data is Talking to You, Can You Hear It? Because healthcare strategists had an abundance of data points, but anthropologists, I'm an anthropologist, anthropologists are taught early that out of context data do not exist. And consequently, the abundance of stuff needed to be turned into a story. And, and I work with them on which story are you going to tell to the leadership of your organization, to the middle management, to the physicians? How are you going to craft those data points so one size doesn't fit anyone? Because the first thing the doctors start to do is delete your, your data. You know, the data is wrong. Well, it's not the data that's right or wrong. It's the way you've crafted a story using the data to help you see, feel, and think about that in a different fashion. And Byron is right, because, you know, in, in the computers can't think. Maybe they're getting there, but they can't. They can accumulate all of this data, but they can't really interpret it or craft a story for you. So our uniqueness takes us back to the beginning of our conversation. Mm-hmm. Think. <laughs> and if we can think with better insights to what's happening, what could we think about that could be transformative about our society You know, he writes about education and culture and and work, well, like everything. And how do we come about coming out of pandemic time in a way that gives us an amazing opportunity? I always tell people, don't waste a crisis. Humans hate to change. The amygdala loves to hijack new ideas. The cortisol comes flying out the minute there's something new. So as you're listening to us I bet you're saying, oh, no. And I'm saying, yes, And Begin to think through what's possible. You know, Byron, I have had such a good time, but I think it's time we wrap up. A couple of things you don't want our listeners to forget.
1: The book has 20 purposes of stories, which uh, I accumulated over a couple of years just reading storybooks. When I was working on this book, you know, I would write it in the mornings, but in the evenings I read storybooks. And I would just try to figure out, like, what, what, what? purpose is this story serving and i think i came up with 20 um but if you read the epilogue one page long there is a secret 21st purpose that uh, is the biggest one of all and it's that stories are what give life meaning and there's like these two different narratives of kind of our lives and one is that you know we're just kind of like big bags of chemicals and electrical impulses that careen through space and bump into other big bags and and then we we uh we fizzle out and are forgotten that's a a story and it's it robs everything of any meaning any permanent meaning but there's another one that says that your life is not that that all life has inherent worth and that you know your life is a not a not a domino rally of minute after minute after minute after minute, but that all of the moments of your life are kind of connected in, the, in a sequence that tells a story. And um, and I closed the book by asking, you know, who who is telling that story? Well, in
0: the, but you're leading to something real important. I'm going to pull the book up again so the folks can see it. There we go. Stories, dice, and rocks that think. And it's how humans learn to see the future and shape it. And I think that the from my perspective, what I'd like our listeners to walk away with other than go buy the book is reading with this open mind and be curious. I think it's our curiosity that has become so essential for us to see things through a fresh lens and to begin to understand. If I hadn't worked with company after company to get stuck or stalled, I'd say to you, piece of cake, the times change, we just adapt. But humans are so convinced that what they do today is the way we should do it, that they forget that we haven't ever done it that way (laughs) over all of these centuries. You know, maybe Homo erectus did the same things with a Cechulian tool exactly the same way because it was DNA driven. Um, Mm. But for us, we're creators and we're story makers. And as we listen to each other's stories, capture the insights that come and begin to see your own life with different purpose and different opportunity. The one thing that Byron says often in here is that um, we are mortal. We know that. And that changes the dynamics. Does a beaver know it is? Does my dog know they live every day in the moment? People say live in the moment. We are, it's hard to do that because we can see what's coming, even if we're not sure. So where shall they buy your book, Byron? any old place any old place all the
1: usual suspects yes
0: and if you buy it on amazon and like to write reviews um it is a great place to put a little it's a great book and i think you're going to enjoy reading it and reflecting on our own next step because if you read the past you're thinking about the future and the future is here for us to create and i do think that it's a time of great creativity and don't waste crisis because it's a time for you to think in new ways Thank you. Um, Do you also speak and consult? Are there other things that you can offer our listeners?
1: Uh, Yes, I do uh, speak when I am invited, and uh, and that's most of what I do. I'm writing another book, which is due in 33 days. (laughs) I only know that because I've got a big countdown clock on my mantle.
0: (laughs) I'm laughing because I have a book due November first. I think you and I are taking time out to do this, and um, we'll we'll do a podcast to discuss your next book and mine. But for now. Thank you all for coming today. It's been absolutely a pleasure. Um, Byron Reese has written this great book, but he's coming up with his next one. But he reflects like I love to do on who we are as humans, where we've been and where we're going and how we're going to do better together. Because it's only together that we can go anywhere. Uh, Humans love herds. We love to be together and it's hard to be alone. And loneliness often comes from living alone. You send me great emails and you send me great people you want me to interview. It's info at andysimon.com. And you can find my books there and everything else. And we love to help you see, feel, and think in new ways so you can change. So come along and send us your thoughts. And Byron, have a great day. Thank you again.
1: Goodbye, everybody.
0: Bye now.